It's a, it's, it's a great thing at a church where you have this time of greeting each other, and it takes me raising my voice over big speakers to get everyone calmed down. It's fantastic. Uh, this morning, we are looking at baptism. We've been in a series called The Greatness of Ordinary Grace, and baptism is something that, if, that happens all over the world every day, it's a, and even in of itself, it's a very ordinary thing. You're just getting wet. You know, hopefully, you get wet every day, and if not every day, hopefully every other day. And if not, please come talk to me. So, us getting wet is a normal thing, right? Baptism gets you wet, and a pastor says some simple words. I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But baptism is no ordinary thing. um, Because we're going to see how greatly God uses it in our lives. This week... um, I am kind of giving a a biblical and theological overview of baptism. To some of you, you just heard boring. To others of you, you heard yay, right? Next week, Pastor Blake is going to give uh, what we can call like a practical application of baptism. So that's why on page 10 of your bulletin, we have a lot of different scriptures. And so some of these I will refer to in the sermon. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Beginning with Romans 4.11. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believed without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And from Acts. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children. And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And from Genesis. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. And then from Colossians, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. 
and then from 1 Corinthians. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she shouldn't divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So this morning, like I said, we're kind of looking at a biblical theological overview of baptism. And we want to we want to look at three questions as you have on your bulletin, page 11. What is baptism? Who is to be baptized? And then why is baptism gracious? So those three questions. Now, if you've been here at Trinity for any amount of time, you realize that Trinity baptizes both adults who haven't been baptized before and are professing faith in Jesus, as well as the children of members of Trinity. Okay? So, most of us, if you're like me or the people in this area, you kind of come from a Baptist-type church or a Pentecostal-type church where children are not baptized. So, we are going to talk about infant baptism this morning, but our goal here is not to try to bind your conscience. You can absolutely be a member of Trinity and not buy the infant baptism thing one bit. We have lots of people who are part of Trinity who are in that situation. And I don't want you to take, if you're in that boat, I don't want you to take this morning as a chastisement of your view. It's not. What we want to do, what Blake and I as a pastoral team and the session want to do is just simply explain, hey guys, this is what Trinity believes, the Bible to say about baptism and why, okay? So that's why, that's why we're talking about it. And baptism is a family discussion, right? There are lots of just amazing men and women who know lots about Christianity, lots about the Bible, lots about baptism, and totally disagree with Presbyterians. I think they're wrong, but that's okay. They think I'm wrong, and that's okay. So this is an intramural conversation, okay? But we're not going to start with infant baptism, okay? What we're going to start with is just, what is baptism? What is baptism? So baptism comes from this Greek word, baptizo. You heard that before, baptizo. It's a fun word to say. What does it mean? It just means baptize. You will hear lots of different people say, well, it means to dip or to immerse. You know what? If you read the New Testament and where this word appears, and you read all sorts of literature around this time, baptizo can mean to immerse or dip or pour or sprinkle, but it it mainly means to wash. It means to wash. Like you've got dirt on you, and you baptizo, and you can wash. So now, you parents, especially the little kids who always get their hands so grimy, before they come to the dinner table, you can say, children, baptizo, and they know that means to go wash their hands. And then you say, no, in this house, we don't sprinkle baptizo. 
So it's a transliteration, this word. It's like Yesu Christu, Jesus Christ, apostolos, apostles, diakonos, deacons. We just carry a lot of these words that don't really have a translation directly into English and make them sound like English. And that's it. So what is baptism? For, for this morning, we can say baptism is three things, okay? The first is, baptism is a sacrament instituted by Jesus. Baptism is a sacrament instituted by Jesus. For the last couple of weeks during worship, we've read Matthew 28, 18 to 20, this great commission. In verse 19, Jesus is saying, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Quite frankly, the primary reason we do baptism is because Jesus told us to. After he was raised from the dead and before he ascended to the Father, he told us to do two primary things, to baptize and teach, right? Two primary things, to baptize and teach. And it's a sacrament. It uses just simple stuff. Baptism uses a person in water. The Lord's Supper is another sacrament. It uses simple stuff, bread and wine. But it's, it's things that we do as a church, and the church has done for 2,000 years because simply Jesus commanded it, okay? So that's the first thing. Baptism is a sacrament instituted by Jesus. And the second thing is baptism is done in the name of the triune God. For those of you who have Bibles and you want to turn there, You can turn to Matthew 28, verse 19. I just read it. I'll read it again, this great commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you look at this sentence in the Greek, do you know what it says? It says, not baptizing them in the name of the Father, It literally says, baptizing them into the name of the Father. It's not in, in the Greek. It's the Greek word ace, which is into. So what does that mean? If we are being baptized into the name of the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit of the Triune God. Well, think about it as, um, like when when you marry your dog, Wait, no, that's not it. Um, did I just say marry your dog? It was two illustrations that just got jumbled in my head, okay? What do you say we call it a day? No. When you get married, the dog will come later, okay? When you get married, husband and wife come together a uh, really common practice is for the wife to adopt the husband's name, right? Bonnie's maiden name is Little. And when Scott Mitchell and Bonnie Little were up there, that, you know, we said the vows and we did the kiss and celebrated, she was no longer Bonnie Little. She was Bonnie Mitchell. She became a Mitchell. Baptism is a lot like that. It's a naming ceremony. You are now no longer Christian person who professes Jesus, known as enemy of God, apart from the promises of God. You are now known by his name. 
It's like you drop your name and you are now whatever your name is, who is of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. It's a naming ceremony. The dog illustration, not that you marry your dog. When you purchase a pet, a lot of us like to name our pets. Whatever your, what do you name a dog? Let's say Fluffy Pumpernickel, but then what's the dog's last name? It's yours, if you give the dog a last name. Fluffy Pumpernickel Mitchell. I purchased that dog and placed upon that dog my name. Jesus purchased his people and places upon his people that name. Baptism is like signing a marriage certificate. It's like signing a pet certificate if such a thing exists or existed. Baptism is done in the name of the triune God because in that we get his name, okay? The third thing about baptism this morning, baptism is a sign and seal of our covenantal union with Jesus. Baptism is a sign and seal of our covenantal union with Jesus. We read question and answer 95 from the Westminster Shorter Catechism on page 9 of the bulletin. And what we want to talk about, about baptism being the sign and seal of our covenantal union with Jesus, is pretty simple. First, everything that God has ever done to save, to redeem people, has been done in the, it takes place in a covenant. Whenever he deals with people, it's always through a covenant. And in Scripture, a covenant, if you don't know what it is, it's an agreement between God and a person. Okay, it's an agreement between God and a person. And sometimes, God gives a physical sign to represent that covenant. So the first time we see this is with Noah. You know, Noah's on the ark, and then the floods come, and then the floods recede, and then God makes a covenant with Noah, and then what sign does he give Noah? He gives him the rainbow. And the rainbow just simply says, is God's promise that he'll never flood the earth for judgment again. Another sign, and with his covenant with Abraham, God says, you shall circumcise. We just read this. Your children, all the males who are in your house, eight days old. And this is a sign of my promise and my faithfulness to you. So baptism is a sign and seal of our covenantal union with Jesus because in the new covenant with Jesus, baptism is the physical marker. A lot like the rainbow, a lot like circumcision, baptism confirms the new covenant in Jesus physically. Okay, so that's the sign. Now, what is this this language that we see about it being a seal? About it being a seal. A seal is just a confirmation. You can kind of use those two words interchangeably. Y'all remember... Well, I doubt any of you actually remember days in which this happened, but have seen it on TV or heard about it. When a king would send the letter, and he put a dab of wax on it, and then seal it on the back. What was the purpose of him doing that? 
The purpose was to make sure that whoever received the letter knew that it was from the king, right? And that it wasn't tampered with, that no one had broken the seal. The purpose of that seal was to confirm that the king's words are true and right. Baptism is the same sort of thing. Baptism is a confirmation that our king's words are true and right. It's telling us that the gospel of truth, for instance, inasmuch as baptism, inasmuch as water washes away the filth on the outside, so also Jesus' blood washes away our filth on the inside. That's the promise that we have, the seal in baptism. So that's a brief overview of what baptism is. If you want more resources, or if you have any questions about any of this, I think my email address is somewhere on that bulletin. You can email me, or if you want, you can email Pastor Blake, talk to one of the elders. Happy to answer questions, okay? Now, point number two here, who is to be baptized? Who is to be baptized? Those who profess their faith in Jesus and their obedience to him. Across the evangelical and even, not even evangelical uh, view, like all over the world, this is what Christians believe. If you grow up not believing in Jesus, never having been baptized, and then you come to faith in Jesus, you see him as your Savior and King, you are to be baptized. Baptists believe that. Presbyterians believe that. Roman Catholics believe that. Eastern Orthodox believes that. Coptic Christians believe that. Every Christian all over the world believes that. That's not... There's no, that's a universal truth. So who is to be baptized? Those who have never believed and now profess their faith in Jesus. And two, infants of members of the visible church. Infants of members of the visible church. Some of you were raised Presbyterian. I was not. So hearing about infant baptism for the first time, you know what I thought? This is crazy. Why are they doing that? And then I realized that they weren't actually like immersing the babies, and it made it a little better. Oh, okay, they're just sprinkling them. Um, I thought it was crazy. And so, like, trying to think through infant baptism, it was a big deal. And for some of you, it has been a big deal. So why do Presbyterians, and not just Presbyterians, by the way, there's, there's lots of other denominations and groups who baptize infants and believers. Why do Presbyterians baptize babies, let's say, when it's not commanded explicitly? You can look all throughout the Bible. Not once does it say, hey, believers, baptize your babies. It doesn't say it. Infant baptism is not commanded explicitly in the Bible. But... Something doesn't have to be commanded explicitly in the Bible for the church to do it, okay? I'll give you two examples of this. First, worshiping on a Sunday. Nowhere in Scripture, in the New Testament, does it say Christians shall worship on a Sunday. It just doesn't. We gather every Sunday morning, though. So that's the first example. Second example, nowhere in Scripture does it say that women should take the Lord's table, just not there. 
But every week, women all over the world take the Lord's table. Why do we do those things? Why do we worship on a Sunday? Why do do we expect and want women just as well as men to come to the table? But good and necessary inference. We do it because even though the Scripture doesn't command it explicitly, we see that this is a good thing and that it's a necessary thing. The Presbyterian view of baptism is very similar. We see this, even though it's not commanded, as to be good and necessary. Now, some of you know uh, that we just recently moved to Oklahoma. If you've been visiting here for not too long, you may not know that. My wife and I moved from Pennsylvania in the middle of July to Owasso, Oklahoma. We live in Owasso. And the cultures there are very different. We were an hour from Philadelphia. Um, every Sunday evening on one of the TV stations, there was a special segment on the news called Mob Talk, where an informant from the mob would talk with a guy on the news station and tell him who's getting out of jail, who's going to jail, what's been going on. And I come down to Owasa, you know what I see? Churches everywhere. But just a couple Presbyterian churches. So it's been interesting for, for me to meet people in Owasso. Everyone's been so friendly. Um, it's great. Hi, I'm Scott. I'm so, hey, Scott, what do you do? Oh, I'm a pastor. Oh, great, great. And some people still think, oh, you're a pastor. And then, oh, where are you a pastor? And I say, oh, Trinity Presbyterian Church. We meet at the sixth grade center. And it's like something happens in people's ears when they hear Presbyterian that I've literally seen mothers take their children and hide them from me as if I'm holding a bottle of water, just waiting to baptize every child that walks by. I'm not hiding in Walmart, waiting for children to come by. So, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's not what Presbyterians believe. Why do we believe that infant infant baptism is biblical? Uh, I'll give you three brief reasons. First, baptism is the sign of the new covenant, and it has replaced circumcision as a sign of the old covenant. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant, and it's replaced. Circumcision is the sign of the old covenant. We read it in Colossians. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Okay. Baptism corresponds to circumcision spiritually. They certainly don't correspond physically, but they correspond spiritually. What is the spiritual meaning of circumcision? As the flesh is cut off, so may sin be cut away. From you. Baptism is very similar. So as the water cleanses you on the outside, so may the Holy Spirit by the blood of Jesus cleanse you internally. That's what we see. So baptism has replaced circumcision as the covenant sign. Second reason we Presbyterians believe this is that when God makes a covenant, he always makes the covenant with believers and their children. 
When God makes a covenant, he always makes a covenant with believers and their children. We see this with every single covenant God makes in Scripture. The covenant with Adam in the very beginning. Adam, if you obey, you earn life for you and all of your offspring. If you disobey, you earn death for you and all of your offspring. God made a covenant with Adam. He made a covenant with Noah. He promised not only to Noah, but all of Noah's physical descendants, if you, um, that he will never destroy the world by flood again. He makes it with Abraham and all of his children. He makes it with Moses and all of his children. David, even David, he said, David, I'm making a covenant with you that your son will be king. And you know what? David's son, 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 Jesus was king and is king. And so now in the new covenant, if an arrangement between us and God is made that doesn't include our physical children, then can it really be called a covenant? I don't think that it can. And if that were to be abandoned in the New Testament, we would we'd expect to see specific things being overturned. So... And that's the language that we see in Peter and Acts. You know, we just read it. This is repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You'll receive the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children. That sounds, that's a very Jewish type thing to say. And he's applying it to Christians here. So when God makes a covenant, he always makes it with believers and their children. And the third reason is signs of the covenant are given to believers and to their children. You know, we read the passage in Genesis 17 that Abraham was to circumcise all of the males in his household. And he did that. And you know what? He circumcised his newborn, Isaac, and he also circumcised his older child that he had with his handmaid, Ishmael. Now, did Ishmael or Isaac, either one, profess their faith in this God who was going to save him? No, they couldn't. I mean, Ishmael might could have, but the covenant sign still went to Abraham and to his physical descendants. So, we see this as Presbyterians as a warrant to baptize our children in the same way. You see, it's not... Baptism doesn't mark our faith. Baptism is a marker of God saying, I am the faithful one. When we come to the Lord's table here in a second, are we coming because we say, we're saying we're faithful, we have faith, and therefore we do this? Not really. Most of us come, we say, I'm a, I'm a pretty terrible person. And I'm thankful that Jesus saves pretty terrible people. We rest on the promise of God associated with the table. In baptism, we're resting on the promise of God associated with baptism. We believe that Jesus cleanses us from sin as baptism cleanses our bodies. It's important to understand baptism doesn't save the infant any more than it saves the adult who comes to faith. We all know lots of people who even were baptized as teenagers or adults who turned away from the faith, right? 
Baptism doesn't save us. It doesn't save our infant children when they're baptized. But it declares that they are part of the covenant community, that they belong to God, and they are a part of the covenant. So the final question we want to look at this morning, this is very brief. Why is baptism gracious? This is the last one on your outline. Why is baptism gracious? First, baptism calls us to believe the gospel. It calls us to believe the gospel. When we witness a baptism here at Trinity, what we witness is someone, whether adult or infant, who has the water poured over them. And it calls us who are witnessing this. Jesus does cleanse from sin. He does. He saves people who are unfaithful. It calls us to believe the gospel. Baptism is also gracious because it calls us to it calls us to grow in grace. You know, baptism is not magic. Clearly, when we baptize someone, adult or infant, it's the same call to them. It calls them repent and believe the gospel. Without faith, you will be lost, baptized or not. And so us who are witnessing baptism, it's gracious because it calls us to again and again and again repent and believe the gospel. And the third way that baptism is gracious, it calls us to rest in Jesus. I don't know about you, It's really easy to think way too much of yourself. Right? Baptism calls us to lay down our works, calls us to lay down our efforts, and to to visually see that God, He is a forgiving God. He does keep His promises. And He will enable us to rest in what he has done in Jesus, not what we have done. So what we're called to in baptism when we witness it is simply to rest and to trust in Jesus. And really, that's similar to what we have with the table. Whenever we we talk about the table, week in and week out, um, talk about examining yourself, the table is a time to come and to rest and to be with Jesus. Like, do, y'all, do y'all know kind of that feeling like if you're married, you haven't seen your spouse all day, you've had a long day, and really what you're wanting to do is just sit down on a couch together? That's what the table's like. Or maybe you haven't seen a, a, a friend in a long time. And you just want to have a cup of coffee and just sit there and rest and to be yourself. That's what the table is. The table is not about us making sure that we're worthy, making sure that we have enough faith. If you believe that Jesus is king and that his body and blood have been broken for you, then we come to it. So, If you're a member in good standing of a church that preaches the gospel, 
that loves Jesus, you need to come. But if you're not, if you don't know where you stand with Jesus, don't. And that's okay. Um, see, see me for prayer. Talk to someone afterwards. There is no shame in this church for not taking the supper. Okay? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then they ate it. And then Jesus took the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant for my covenantal people in my blood. All of you drink it. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim his death until he comes again. Friends, our God is faithful. Our Savior is faithful. He has died, he has resurrected, and he is coming again. So when we eat this table, we don't eat it kind of looking in at ourselves, thinking how bad we've been, thinking how much we've sinned and gone astray from God. That's the wrong part of the service. You need to leave that at the confession of sin and assurance of pardon. We're at the Lord's table now where our eyes are not on ourselves. Our eyes are on him. He is dead. He is raised. He is coming again. And if you believe that, embrace it. This is for you. So let's pray. And before I do, give you instructions. Come down the center aisle, either to these two front stations or those two back stations. An elder will be there. And you can pick up either bread or there's a gluten-free option in the tray. And the white is grape juice, and the red is wine. After that, return to your seats, okay? And our covenant children are coming in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we have to celebrate Jesus. Not a time to celebrate us, a time to celebrate what he has done. A time to celebrate his death, his resurrection, his return, we pray soon. We come to it knowing that you are a faithful God, that you wash away sin, and that we can come to you as we are. So, Father, enable us at this time to come and partake of Jesus as he is. In his name, amen.